Let's begin. We begin Sefer Bamidbar, the fourth of the five Svarim books that we read uh, as we completed Sefer Vayikra last week. And as we have been doing over the last couple of months, uh, learning the comments of Rav Hirsch. So we'll continue our process. We'll do, learn the first few psukim of Bamidbar. Uh, of course, as always, Rav Hirsch has a number of insightful comments uh, to make as we go along. Bamidbar, of course... Um, as we'll speak about, has the main component of the beginning of the parsha, which will address is the count of the Jewish people. This is actually the third count within the first year that the Jews leave Mitzrayim that they are counted. And the Torah describes exactly how that count was done. This parsha is always read the Shabbos or two before Shavuos. This year Shavuos is, of course, on Moses Shabbos. Uh, so we will read Bamidbar right immediately prior on Shabbos afternoon, and then go right from there into uh, Shavuot. So there's a number of connections with that as well. And so uh, let's begin. Let's start right from the beginning. We're going to read a few psukim inside, and then go through a number of different uh, comments on it. So the Torah first tells us exactly where and when this conversation takes place. The first thing the Torah tells us is where. Hashem spoke to Moshe. It was in Midbar Sinai. So we know that we're still holding at Midbar Sinai, which is, of course, where the Jews go seven weeks after leaving Mitzrayim when they receive the Torah in Midbar Sinai. They arrive there on Rosh Chodesh Sivan and receive the Torah just a few days later. So they are still here. That's still there, I should say. That's where we're this episode the Torah records, we're still encamped in the wilderness of Sinai, in the Oel Moed. Hashem is speaking to Moshe from the Oel Moed. We've now already constructed the Mishkan, and it's from there that Hashem speaks to Moshe. So we know where Hashem is speaking to Moshe. And then the Torah tells us when Hashem spoke to Moshe. It was Be'echad Lachodesh Hasheni. It was on the first day of the second month, Bashana Hasheni, of the second year. So we're about a full year a little bit more, 13 months from when they left Mitzrayim, and a little bit less than a full year from when they received the Torah. They received the Torah on the 6th of Sivan, which is the third month, the sixth day of the third month, and now they're being spoken to on the first day of the second month. So about 11 months after they received the Torah, they are still there in Midbar Sinai. So it's the first day of the month of the Iyar, and it's the second year, let's say, Samei Eretz Mitzrayim Leimor. So the Torah gives us all of this background as Hashem is about to tell Moshe to count the Jewish people. And all of this background is to tell us exactly when again and where this is being uh, taking place. number of important comments to discuss. Rashi, first of all, very famously mentions uh, what I said a moment ago, that this is the third time they've been counted. They were counted right when they left. They were counted after the Chete Ego, after the sin of the golden calf. And now they're being counted again towards the end of that first year. How many times do you have to count the people in the same year? The difference is, as the morale points out, okay, some people live, some people die. There was a plague, but like how many times you have the basic numbers three times in one year? So Rashi begins me, it is a sign of Hashem's great love of the Jewish people that he counts them always, every opportunity, even though for sure he could have relied on the basic count that had taken place the first time. Certainly you could rely on the second time. You need a third count, yes, because when you love something, 
you want to count it always and always and always again. And therefore, we see uh, the love that Hashem has. It's always interesting to know. Rashi's first comment in all of the five Chumashim always is a statement of Hashem's love or care. When we learn Sefer Vayikra, Rashi pointed out Vayikra, the word Vayikra to call out was a sign of love that Hashem had for Moshe in calling out him by name. Every first comment Rashi makes always is somehow describing the relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people and being one of great care and concern or great love, as in this particular, uh, in this particular case. Rav Hirsch notes, Rav Hirsch notes in the idea that we're about to have here the whole Sefer of Bamidbar, um, which when we learn Bamidbar, we're going to learn is a series of, uh, I don't want to call them calamities, but certainly errors or mistakes that the Jewish people are going to make. It's a string of complaints. We're going to have the rebellion of Korach. Um, and the, the whole, the book leaves, as Refersh points out, the idealism of Sefer Vayikra. Sefer Vayikra is about the construction of the Mishkan, the way the Mishkan is going to function, the role of the Kohanim and the Levim and a Jew who brings the Karban, and the whole experience is sort of almost like an idealistic approach as to what the Jewish people should be. As we begin Sefer Bamidbar, Refersh points out, we, are, we run into the conflict or the contrast between the idealistic approach that we want and the reality on the ground of where we are. Refersh has addressed this point in a number of different places. If you've been uh, following, the, listening to the Shir and his comments over the year, he makes that comment of where the Torah is always highlighting those two things. This is the ideal and here's the reality. And you need them both because if you only live in the ideal world and you don't address the reality of where you actually are, you might falsely think that you're living the ideal life and you're far from it. If you only live in the ideal, in the reality, and you never describe what it is that your goals or dreams or wishes are, you'll never get there because you're just living in the reality of what is. And that's not perfect. You have to always describe the ideal, yearn for the ideal, wish for that kind of life, and you always have to be well aware of where you actually are so that recognizing the reality of the circumstances, I can yearn for more. And that, he writes, is in another example here is in, in the conflict as we go from Sefer Vayikra, which is the idealistic world of the Jew in the Beis HaMikdash, to Sefer Bamidbar is going to bring us into much of the reality. And that's why we begin, however, he says, with a count, which is what we're going to get into in the very next Pasuk. The count is every single Jew counts. Every single person makes a difference. Every single person is part of the mission of getting the nation from where it is to where it wants to be. That cannot happen. Moving from the reality on the ground to the ideal place we want to be without the input, the effort, the growth orientation of each and every person. So as we begin Bamidbar, as we begin here we go. This is, we're not going to hit up against the reality of where we are. I want to count every single person and say, you are part of this goal of this mission of getting us to where we actually want to go. He makes a very interesting comment. The very end of Sefer Vayikra, which we finished last week, I can actually just scroll back. Was that, let me do that. Uh, not so easily. Okay, we'll leave it as that. Um, the very last disc- mitzvah that was described at the end of Sefer Vayikra was the mitzvah of a, uh, an, a farmer who's raising sheep to count them and give off miser. So that every 10, every year, he would take all of the sheep that were born into his flock in that particular year, and he would pass them through 
Tachat Hashavet, there would be a narrow opening in his pen, and the sheep would walk through one at a time, and every tenth one that walked through would be labeled and would be given to a Kohen as a mice, would be brought uh, to Yerushalayim. And Rav Hirsch makes the connection and says, in the same way as we concluded Sefer Vayikra with Hashem counting, with, uh, with the, the farmer, the Jew, counting his flock to give off one tenth to Hashem, Hashem then says, I'm going to count you too. You are my flock. I am your shepherd. And the same way that you lovingly count your possessions, I too, this, the Sefer begins with the sentiment in which Hashem says, I want to count you too. Just like you count your possessions lovingly, I want to do the same thing uh, as well. One last point on this first Pasuk. The Torah tells us, as we mentioned, exactly not just when the conversation happens, but where it happens. It's Bamidbar Sinai. It's in the wilderness, the desert of... Uh, uh, of Sinai. Many of the Mepharshim point out that, as, I, as we mentioned before also, this is always read before the giving of the Torah, and there's a connection between the fact that Torah is highlighting we are in the desert when we receive the Torah. It was Midbar Sinai, and we read this Pasuk of Sefer Ba Midbar, the book of the desert, as well always before the giving of the Torah, and that's because of the deep connections. There are many connections that are pointed out between the giving of the Torah specifically in uh, the desert. Number one, uh, which is, again, is always read before Shavuos, and some of the ideas just as that are mentioned, just to review as to what the connection is specifically with the desert and the reading of this parsha right before uh, we receive the Torah. Um, the Torah was given in the desert. It was not given in Eretz Yisrael, just uh, many point out as well. Had the Torah been given in the land of Israel, which is explicit in the Torah dozens and dozens and dozens of times, the place where a Jew should live, the place where we're all going to live, the place where the Torah is supposed to be kept, one would have said, so give us the Torah in the land of Israel. That would have made sense given the numbers of times the Torah says, this is the land I've given to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. This is the land I want you to have. This is the land I want you to keep the mitzvahs in. We've spoken about many times the Ramban, the Maral speak about that really is the place the mitzvah should be fulfilled. So why wasn't the Torah given there? So many commentators point out, it's true, that's our goal, that's where we're supposed to be. But the Torah wasn't given there because then we would think that it would not apply anywhere else. And Hashem knew that there was going to be a long period of exile of the Jewish people in which we would not be privileged to live in the land of Israel. And one should never think that Torah doesn't apply if you're not in the land of Israel. It 100% does. In fact, the Torah was not even given in the land of Israel. It was given outside the land of Israel because it is universal. It is eternal. And it doesn't matter where a Jew may find him or herself. But the Torah itself always applies. And therefore, it was not given in the land of Israel, but specifically outside. And not just anywhere outside, but specifically in a desert. And there are many, many meanings and significances that have been attributed to that. Number one, a desert, of course, is a place you can't really survive in on your own. You need help to be able to survive in a desert. Um, and Torah is our Eitzachayim. It is our gift, our tree of life. That is going to be what will sustain and nourish us where it is given in a place where it's like, I can't live. That's right, you, I can't live without Torah. I can't live in a desert. I can't live without my Torah. It is also that a Jew has to make himself, the Chazal say, like a desert like a Hefker, ownerless place, there's no previous conceptions or misconceptions or ideals upon which we impose the Torah. No, a person has to make himself like a desert, plain, blank, empty sheet of paper. Upon that, you can put the Torah. That's the message. If you come in, we come in with our own idea. This is really what I think morality is, or I think the way that a person should act or behave. And then I try to balance that. Well, the Torah says that. I don't like that. I don't think that way. I think differently. 
That's not how it works. It works the other way around. The person has to make himself like a desert. I have to be a blank slate, clean slate, and then on top of that, you can impose the idealism of the Torah. That's how I want to think and act and behave based on what the Torah transposes upon me. And lastly, of course, one of the most important ideals of the fact that the Torah was given in the desert um, and that we recall that instance as we begin Shavuos and we always read this parsha was the unity of the Jewish people in the desert as they encamped, Vayichan Sham Sahar, they encamped singularly, as one person with one mission, which of course also ties into the count of the Jewish people as we'll get to in a moment. All of that, um, is part of the idea of being given specifically in a desert. Okay, but let's move on. So the Torah gave us this, this debor, this con- communication between Hashem and Moshe. We know it's on Rosh Chodesh Iyar, the first day of the second month of the year. We're into the second year in the desert. We're still at Midbar Sinai. And what is the command? Se'u es Rosh Kol Adas B'nei Yisrael. Counts the heads of Kol Adas B'nei Yisrael, or the entirety of the Jewish people, but don't just count them as an adaj, as a one group, count them based on their families, based on literally mean like the houses of their fathers. So we'll, we'll speak a little bit in a moment about what exactly that meant. And how will you count them? You'll list every name, each person, each individual by his head. Okay, much to discuss. So we have here the basic command that you're going to count everyone. You're gonna, now the way the Torah uses the word to count is which literally would translate into raise up the heads of each member of Adas B'nai Yisrael. Which again, many of the commentators point out the language, raise up the head. Like when you're counting, you're not just counting, you're not just taking a number. I want to raise up the head to make each individual who was counted feel significant, feel important, understand the role that they have. I literally raise up the head of each member of B'nai Yisrael to be counted. We've spoken about one year in the past, the Medrash points out that there's actually a conflicting possibility when you raise up a head. Sometimes a king will use that language when he wants to send somebody to the gallows, raise up their head, but it's in the sense of, and off with their head. And the Medrash points out, that's literally what's happening when a person is being counted. Su'u Rosh, we're going to lift up your head. You wanted to live in anonymity. You wanted to live as part of the crowd. You wanted to be a nobody. You didn't want to be noticed. You just wanted to do your own thing and be left alone. And we say, no, we lift up your head and we say... You're now going to be counted. And now that we look at you as an individual, a single person with your mission and your goal, what's going to be? Now that you can't live in the anonymity, now that the spotlight is on you, either we'll raise up your head in the sense of royalty, we'll raise up your head to be the most prestigious and important person of nobility, or it'll be, what did you become? What happened to you? Off with your head in the sense of now that the spotlight's on you, you want to make sure that uh, it shines in a good way. And therefore, you have the double language of se'u es rosh, to lift up one's head, depending on how it's used. But either way, it's clearly a language of shine the spotlight, lift up the head of each of the uh, each person. But the Torah then says, as we're going to count uh, each individual person, the, first of all, one other point, the way that a person is counted, and this goes back to Sefer Shmos when we discuss this as well, is you're counted with a half a shekel donation. We don't just count people, we count the money that they contribute. And Refresh again points out here, like he did then, which there's a very important message in that. To be a, a standing member of the Jewish people, you have to give of what you have back to the people. We're not here for ourselves. We're not here just to gather and take resources and then live in the comforts of our own home and not do or be any part of the community. You must 
contribute something to be counted, so to speak. To be able to say, I am part of this nation and here is my contribution to do so. It's a symbolic gesture. It's not just symbolic. It actually raises a lot of money for the Beis Zamikdash and for the Mishkan to be able to function. I'm a part of it. I, I count because I'm contributing. It's not a major amount. It's something. And, that, and that's the symbolism of you got to get up and do something to be counted. That's what every single member of the Jewish people has to do in order to say, like, I want to be part of part of this. Uh, and then the way that we count, first points out, is a quite a peculiar method of counting. We don't just count a total number. We count families and fathers' homes. And first describes what this in essence was, was we had the 12 tribes, we know that. The Jewish people were counted by tribe, but we didn't just count tribe. Here are the number of people in Shevet Ruven. Here are the numbers of people in Shevet uh, Levi and Yisachar and Zvulun and Yehuda. Within each family, the original tribes, the actual people, Ruven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, had their children. Those children became a base of, so that you were a member when you would identify, say, I'm from the tribe of Ruvain, and I'm from Ruvain and his son, whoever it was. So there were like five or six children of Ruvain, so that created like a branch. Within the tribe of Ruvain, I was, I'm descended from this particular family. And then within the base of, that was then further branched out into various mishpachas, into various families. So that there'd be a cluster of families who all descended from this particular son of Ruvain, from the tribe of Ruvain. So literally it was like a tree branch. You would have the original tribe. Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda. Within each tribe, it was subdivided into the three major base of us, three, four, five, however many children that original Shevet had. And then from within that, there were clusters of families that were further developed from within that family. So that when we were counted, we weren't, it wasn't just a sum total of a number of in the tribe of Ruvain, or even the whole Jewish people. It was the tribe of Ruvain was counted within your cluster of your mishpacha and within your particular base of. As the first points out, why is that? What's the significance of that? That instead of just giving one large count, we have to have all of these subdivided counts. And he writes very beautifully, this peculiar type of count is to express the essence of what we are as a nation. We are at the same time two different things. And this is a, uh, uh, an important but basic idea um, that he develops in a very beautiful way. We're individuals. We're individuals and we're part of a nation. What he, what he particularly addresses in, is, in this point, in this particular instance is, we, we have a single national goal to accomplish that which the Jewish people need to accomplish. It's a unified mission surrounded by Torah and service of Hashem. And every single person has that same mission. And so that bigadol, as a whole, if you were to say, what's your mission as a Jew? My mission is to observe Torah and mitzvot and to serve Hashem. Great. Every single Jew would say that, would have the same overarching mission. That's my goal. I want to keep Torah and mitzvot and I want to serve Hashem. Okay, and then if you, would, if you would probe a little bit deeper, you would say, like, how are you going to fulfill your mission? What's your particular mission? And is it, this, it sounds like everybody's got the same mission. Say, well, no, not at all. In the same way, and using a very uh, old but clear example, in the same way in an army, there are many different aspects of the army. You have, of course, the Air Force and the Navy, and you have intelligence, and you have artillery, and you have um, whatever it is, all the different aspects that go into foot soldiers. Yeah, you have all the different aspects. 
So is one more important than the other? You know, I don't know, maybe in, in a particular mission, you can say in this particular mission, the Navy is more important than the Air Force or the foot soldiers are more important than the artillery or intelligence is actually the most important. But you, you need them all. There, there are desk jobs and there is everything. And if the army is going to function well, everyone has to do their job and be prepared to do what it is that they need to do when they're called upon. And, and maybe there's an elite unit that's true. Maybe there, of course, every army has elite units that are hard to get into and they fulfill a certain mission. And then you're your general foot soldiers. It's all true. In the same way as a symphony, you can make the exact same parallel as is often done. In, in the symphony, you have many different instruments. You have the percussions and you have the strings and, and, and all of that. You have the conductor and you have maybe certain instruments which are highlighted in a certain piece. And maybe in this piece, this month, the orchestra is working on these players are actually more important. And then the next month we work on a different piece and a different group of players are more important. But at any piece that the orchestra is working on, if every piece isn't playing its part correctly and filling its role, it doesn't work. And it's a give and take between who's being highlighted, which parts of the piece are we focusing on different instruments, but everyone has to do their role. Says refers, that's exactly what's happening when we count and we say, we're not just one big number. We're not a big number. We all are in Ada. We're a singular nation with a singular mission to keep Torah, Mitzvah, and serve Hashem. But within that, we actually identify different roles, 12 tribes. Within each tribe, there's a base of. Within the base of, there are different mishpachas. And it's important for us to identify which one are you part of, because different families have different strengths. Obviously, within families, you could have individuals, yes. But as a whole, there are different families who have different roles. This one plays the strings, and this one is on, on uh, percussions, and this one is a conductor, and this one is uh, whatever. This one's in the Air Force and the Navy and foot soldiers and artillery. And each family is identified. And we actually want to count them and say, this family has X amount of numbers. Why do we, why do we have to distinguish them? Because it's important. Because we are actually distinguished. Within the same unifying mission that we have, we have different roles to get there. And it's important to see that. One of the great losses that we have suffered as a people in the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash and the exile is that we no longer have those clear distinctions in a positive way in which we say, you're from this tribe and I'm from that tribe and that's a good thing. We're like, it's okay. We understand each other's role and mission. We still have many different divisions within the Jewish people. We all know that. But instead of a sense of we're all on the same team doing it together, there's a sense of, well, if I'm doing this, this must be the only right way to do it. And therefore, whatever anyone else is doing must be wrong because I'm not doing it. And therefore, if I'm not doing it, what I'm doing must be right. So this is right. And therefore, that's wrong. That's not true. It's, there are many different ways. We just don't have a unifying force. There's no Yaakov Avinu. There's no Moshe Rabbeinu saying, here are 12 children. You do this and you do that and everybody's going to function together. You're in the Air Force. You're in the Navy. It's great. It, it doesn't work. And the Air Force and the Navy, this one says, I'm flying a plane. You're, you're, you're controlling a boat. That's a disaster. Why are you in a boat? Planes are better. No, we need both. They're totally different, but we need 
both. And God willing, we'll see one day the, the value of a count that's subdivided into these different roles because they reflect the different things that are necessary within Klai. So our first points out, that's why the Torah highlights that. There's the Mishpach Osam, the base of Osam, Kol Zachar, every individual's place somewhere, but we're counting Kol Adas B'nei so all of us together. Going on, Pasuk Gamble, Mi Ben Asim Mala, from whom do we count? 20 years and above, Kol Yotzei Tzava B'Yisrael. So her first comment, I was, I was pretty sure that the English translation would say this exactly as it does, which her first disagrees with. Who is counted? 20 and on. The Torah says, anyone who's yotzei tzava b'Yisrael. What does it mean to go out in a tzava? What's a tzava? So as you see on the uh, translation in front of you, able to bear arms, anyone who is able to be in the army. And of course, we living in a modern era since the modern state of Israel has been born, we of course know the word Sava, of course, is an army. That's uh, everybody knows that. Um, Tzavah HaGanah Yisrael is the Israeli Defense Forces. But first, it just, it just doesn't seem like that should be the relevant point. Why are we counting people based on their ability to fight in an army? Now, it's true, it's true before I even say the first comment, Rashi does comment right away that from this puzzle we learn that uh, the Jewish army begins at the age of 20. From the time that you're 20, you're able to bear arms. Don't tell this to the Israeli Defense Forces right now. We'll leave that alone. But that's what Rashi comments from the time of 20, because you see, Kol Yotzei Tzavah B'Yisrael. But at first, says, it just doesn't seem like that should be the simple or primary translation that we're counting people from 20 and up specifically because they fight in an army. We're counting people in a desert. We're not getting ready for a military conquest. We're not counting people for economic purposes, which are the other main reasons why countries count their constituents to know what's our economy going to be like, how many people do we have, what's our army going to be like. Neither one of those are relevant. We're counting people for the spiritual mission of Kal Yisrael. So why do we use the phrase Kol Yotzei Tzavah Yisrael? So our first points out, this is actually not the first time we see that phrase in a way that it can't possibly mean an army. We find that exact phrase when the Torah describes the mission of the Levium. The Levi serves in the Beis HaMikdash. And there the Torah described him as called Ba Litzva La'asos Melachaba Ba'Ol Moed. Anyone who comes to serve in the Ol Moed. Now Litzvot Savad La'avot, to come to serve, doesn't mean in an army. It means that there is a higher order of public service. The levies being called into service. Not army service, public service. And here too, refer says a beautiful thing. Who's counted, as we begin our parsha? Anyone 20 and older, Yotzei Tzava B'Yisrael, which would therefore designate, and refers translate it this way, anyone that goes out into public service in the Jewish people. And what that means is that each person from 20 and above is duty-bound, he says, to step out of his simple private life, which is what everybody wants, just leave me alone, let me do my thing, I don't want to contribute, I want to be by myself. No! We demand of you to step out of your simple private life into the public service of the community for whatever is demanded of you. This count is a statement of, oh, you're now 20. We want your half shekel. In that half shekel, like we spoke about a few moments ago, is the symbol, you're now ready to serve for the Jewish people. That's the most important army you could be part of. It doesn't mean an army to bear arms, to go out to fight. It's an army to serve the public, to let every individual say, I am not here for myself. I'm not here to serve myself. I'm not here to make myself rich or famous. I'm here 
to contribute the talents and the strengths and the capabilities that Hashem has blessed me with, litzvoy tzavo Yisrael to contribute that to the public service. Sometimes public service is army service, 100%. It's a great honor to be able to, as our young men and women are doing in Israel and around the world, they're really, literally willing to sacrifice their lives for the betterment of the community. That's the pinnacle of an individual giving up of his own needs for this betterment of the community. That's why that's the name, Tzava. You're willing to give up your individual needs and desires for the sake of the community. But here, being counted, it's a sign and symbolism to all of us, for first rights, to move out of the private life that we yearn for sometimes, just to be left alone and do our own thing, and contribute our qualities and characteristics and capabilities to that of the Tzibur. And that's who we count. From 20 on up, you're now ready to become a functioning member of Klal Yisrael, and what that means is to be a giver to Klal Yisrael. One last thought from Rav Hirsch. So Hashem says to Moshe, you're going to take with you Ish Ish Rosh You're going to take a leader from each tribe. So when you go around, you and Aaron, you go to each tribe. It's not just you and Aaron. It's you and Aaron and that particular tribe's Nasi, prince leader. He's going to go with you as you count each tribe. And then the Torah gives us the list. These are the men that will stand with you, Luruvein, it's Elitzor ben Shteor, Shimon Eshlumiel ben Sarishadai, and the Torah goes through all of the 12 tribes listing the leader, and then the Torah concludes with Ele Kru'ei Ha'eda. These are the, translated as you have in front of you, the elected of the assembly, the Nisiei Matosavosam, the leaders, the chiefs of each one of the tribes, Roshay Alfei Yisrael, hey, the heads of each of the congregations. Now you'll notice here, it's in front of you, that the word Kru'ei, those who are literally would would be called by the congregation, the leaders of the congregation, is spelled in the Chumash with a Yud, as if it says Kri'e, but it's pronounced as if it was spelled with a Vav, Kru'e. So if Hirsch points out, it's an interesting place in this particular example where the Torah spells something with a Yud, but we pronounce it with a Vav, referring to the tribal leaders who go around with Moshe and Aaron to count. They're the Kru'e Ha'edah the ones who are called by the assembly to be the leaders. What's the difference between if it were pronounced with the Yud Kri'e or Kru'e? So first, that's a beautiful thing. It says the, if it were pronounced uh, Kru'e, which is the way we pronounce it, that indicates someone who was called for a specific occasion in particular. We called this person for this particular task. Kri'e would refer to someone who is permanently called for a particular task, meaning it is their nature. They are always called for the particular task. And why do we switch? Why does the Torah use a Yud and we pronounce it like a Vav? Because who was called for this particular task of counting the people? The ones who are always called for the task. Meaning the Torah wants to highlight who am I calling in this particular instance? Who is the Kru'e, the ones who I appointed for this instance? Go ahead and count the people. The ones who are Kri'e, the ones who are always called upon because they're the ones who are there. They're the ones who volunteer. They're the ones who step forward to do that which is necessary. And in that idea is really a magnificent thought. Very often, you know, the classic example Sure, I've said this before. I'm sure you've heard from others before. You know, uh, you get stranded on the way back from the airport at two o'clock in the morning. Your car breaks down. You need somebody to call, pick you up, and take care of you. So, who are you going to call at two o'clock in the morning? So, the thought process that goes through your head is like, who can I call? Who's not going to be? Who's going to come? Who's going to do this with a smile? Who is the person that I can call that I know will want me to call them? 
you know, you need a volunteer in shul to run a program or to collect tickets at a carnival. Like, who am I going to ask to do this? I know you who you're going to call. I'll tell you who you're going to call to ask to do this. The person who is happy to volunteer. The person who always, why do you always call the same volunteers? I'll tell you why. Because I don't want to call somebody who's going to say no. I don't want to call somebody who's going to do it with a frown, who's going to be angry and sour about the whole thing. The person who regularly does it is the person you call over and over and over again. You want to get on that list, start volunteering. As soon as you make it known, I'm a person who wants to help, you get a lot of phone calls because people need help and they look for people. Who should I call? The person who clearly demonstrates they're interested in doing this. How do you become a crew A, a the one who's called for a specific purpose? By being a Kriya, a dub, by being one who always is there to help out the congregation when it needs it, a person who demonstrates this is what I want to do, this is how I want to help, you get more and more calls. The more you host, the more you get called to host. The more you make meals for people, the more you get called to make meals for people. The more you volunteer to chair an event, to sit on a board, the more you get called. Because people see that's something that you're interested in doing. Leadership is born out of being involved on low-level events, and then that may, oh, that's a person who wants to help, who's able to help, and it gets up and up, higher and higher, and those are the people who rise through the ranks and become the leaders of communities. It's because by being a Kriya when you become one who always does it, you become the Kriya the one who is called for the big task, that's the person who we're going to call and appoint. So understands, refers to those two languages, a beautiful idea. And those became the leaders of the Jewish people to go ahead and count the Jewish people to give each person their mission and make them understand you are part of this national mission to take us from the reality of where we are now and bring us to the idealistic approach of Sefer Vayikra, of what we really want to be. Alavai, we should all get there. Mirz Hashem soon. Always a pleasure learning. Have a wonderful Shabbos and a good Yontiv of Kabbalah Satara.